Father, we're thankful that you are good, that you are kind and gracious, Lord, merciful. We're also grateful, Lord, that you have told us things to come so that we might be forearmed and ready, prepared. Father, we ask that you would make us alive this morning now through your spirit, through your word, that you would speak to each and every one of us in your own special way, that deeply personal way that you move in our lives. We just open our hearts to you now. We pray that the Spirit of God would open your word to us and give us understanding that we might grasp the things that are spiritual that only your spirit can make known to us, even the mysteries of of the kingdom, Lord. So bless your word now. Bless the children. In Jesus' name, amen. You have a Bible with you? Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. We continue to make our way through chapter 24. We're in this particular chapter for the fourth week, Understanding the Times, part four. And it is going to be transitioning, as we can see here, into chapter 25. But the subject matter will continue. Now, you remember that the chapters and verses are not in the original. They were introduced about the 12th century. Uh, And for the most part, they've done a pretty good job with that. It makes it easy for us to use, um, find chapter and verse uh, rather than thumbing through a scroll (laughs) looking for, (coughs) excuse me, the passage we may want. Helps us to reference things. But here I think they kind of missed it, as we'll see. Uh, probably uh, beginning at verse 45 should be part of chapter what we call chapter 25. And so, uh, just as a side note there. But this morning, uh, it's about readiness, about faithfulness. And are you ready? And are you faithful to God? Those are very important questions for believers to answer. And what is Readiness. Readiness is a willingness to do something in preparation for some future event. It's not some, it's, a, it's an active word. It is mean you're actually doing something, not just thinking something, you're actually doing something. And so this chapter is pointing us to the nearness of Christ's return. We'll rehearse some of the things that were previously stated by Christ. But the point is that we are now at the end of the age without question and Christ's return is upon us and that there are those who scoff you know they've been talking about Jesus coming back for years my grandmother you know you know that whole thing well you know what your grandmother was right and Jesus is coming back will he come back to, while we still remain on the earth I don't know that but I know one thing I'm going to die And he's coming for me at that point for sure. And so that's what we're talking about. doesn't matter what you really believe eschatologically, things to come. It matters if you're ready. (coughs) It matters if you're faithful. As we'll see, this is an important truth that believers need to embrace and to know. And so 
it is the parable here of the fig tree, uh, the return of the Son of Man is unknown, and then at the end here, this role of being a faithful and wise servant. These are very important truths for us to grasp as the people of God. You know, in regards to preparedness, years ago, uh, before the turn of the century, we had a computer problem. In the late 90s, um, people began to warn us that the computers weren't ready for the double zero because you have X's and ones in your computer language and you know that whole little deal and so for those of us who are ignorant of computers and computer language and algorithms and all those things we just sort of huh what oh well we might have a crash you know we're depending so much on technology these days we could lose power we could lose this and fortunately they sounded an alarm uh, soon enough to get things changed sufficiently there were some hiccups but they were small ones fortunately but it was unknown. You didn't really know for sure. And so we had this movement among some to prepare for Y2K. You know, and so people were buying, you know, food supplies and the basic needs and sort of storing them up because, you know, you, you, you just don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, f there's some people that really went over the edge, you know, it's got guns and gold and, and head for the hills, you know, and that, that really got out of hand for some. But uh, it's not a bad thing to prepare. It's not a bad thing to prepare for future events. I mean, if you live on the coast, what do you prepare for? You prepare for a hurricane. If you live in the Midwest, you prepare for, for tornadoes, and you have a, a shelter to get to at a moment's notice. And so preparedness is just sort of part of uh, living in this world and understanding what's, uh, that there are things that can happen that can endanger us. And so here at the end of this section of Jesus revealing the future uh, to uh, the, the apostles as they're sitting there on the Mount of Olives, we pick up uh, a story of the parable of the fig tree. And so Jesus is going to use this again to drive home this point of readiness and preparedness. And so let's pick it up here in chapter 24, verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. You also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by <coughs> no means pass away. Now, the first words are very important here. Now learn. That means we are ignorant as believers. We don't know everything. Now, that's contrary to what some people may think of themselves. There are those who think they know it all. They've got prophecy wired. Of course it's obvious. This is the way it's going to end. No. You'd, if you have that opinion about end times in your Bible knowledge, then you need to keep reading. <laughs> because the more you read and the more you comprehend in the scriptures you realize you don't really know anything and as we read through the scriptures and especially when it comes to end times and prophecy it becomes if we're honest with ourselves very convoluted and cryptic 
And so it's hard to really nail down certain things. And the Lord wanted it that way. God is under no obligation to tell every generation with exact precision what's going to transpire during their lifetime. Jesus knew and understood, I would assume, by the Spirit. And God understands that there would be many generations from the time of Christ until his second return. And so as you read through chapter 24, and this would be akin to uh, Luke 21 as well, uh, there's more of a general outline of events and things that will take place during the time between the two comings of Christ. And to read into it and to lay your lens and your perspective upon the text isn't really helpful. You just become more confused. Just take the words for what they say and understand that this is the way God intended it to be. Not really knowing isn't really at a disadvantage for us. It actually keeps us centered. If we don't know something, we're more apt to be less presumptuous and lean upon our own understanding. It's more helpful actually to help us to walk by faith and just simply trust the Lord. These are the lessons that we need to learn anyway, so why not learn it in this area as well? And so, now learn. So it's something that does need to be studied, and understanding should be sought. He's not saying that we should remain ignorant, or that we should be unknowing, but we should extend some effort in grasping the things that have been left to us. And so he's ending this whole prophetic section with some practical encouragement, and admonitions for us, and it's centered around here in this part, um, in the next paragraph as well, around the fig tree here. It's around the days of Noah and a thief in the night. And those are important uh, illustrations to capture uh, what Jesus is saying. And so there are many of us who, when we read this, consider the fig tree. Well, immediately, if you have a scriptural mind, you immediately know that this is speaking of Israel. So we, we put Israel right there. And there's nothing wrong with that, per se. Hosea 9.10 confirms that Israel is uh, God's fig tree. And, and it's, but is he just talking about the natural characteristics that take place within a fig tree? There's the, you know, the late figs that you know, the the major f- crop that's in the harvest at the end of the year, and then rolling around the first part of the year, there's that the first ripe fig. So there's a, a, a kind, of, kind of like a double harvest, as it will, uh, if you, with the fig tree. There's a lot of pregnant ideas with the fig tree. Now, we can read into all, all of that, and we can maybe think that there's something more deeper than what lies behind just the parable of the fig tree. And so I'm going to leave you to think and ponder and learn, as it were, uh, in regards to this parable. And so I'm okay with it being the nation of Israel. Is he referring to its rebirth? You know, this is something that's unprecedented in human history, that nation that ceased to be a nation is reborn and becomes a nation once again. Well, that ha- that's a miracle. It happened with the nation of Israel. So you had the first part of their existence and then a space of time and then a rebirth in 1948. So uh, when you see that, you know, when they come back, is that is that the Lord saying, well, it's near. My coming is near. It's at the doors. You need to be ready. You need to be prepared. Is Jesus trying to get everybody all worked up in that regard? Well, maybe. <laughs> maybe he's trying to wake people up. I'm going to, again, I'm going to leave you to 
Think for yourself. Ponder. <coughs> the branches tender, the leaves, you know, all that just sort of plays into uh, what we see have taken place um, since 1948 in regards to the nation. But it is near. And notice he says there, when you see these things, verse 33, what things is he talking about? When you see these things, well, that's obviously the things he's already talked about. And that began actually in verse 3 through 26. There were various characteristics of things that would take place between his crucifixion and rejection until he would come again. And he laid out these general characteristics of the age that it would be like. And we don't need to really draw any more from it. They're just general things that have been going on since his first coming. What, well, what were some of those things? Well, I'll remind you. Verse 3 through 5 was the time of deception. In between the two comings, there's going to be a lot of confusion. Maybe that's why I said, now learn. <laughs> he wants us to know. God doesn't want us to be ignorant. He doesn't put a premium on ignorance. In fact, you ever try to use that with a policeman when he pulls you over for speeding and you tell him you didn't know the you know, speed limit? That, that really, that excuse doesn't fly. You're getting written up for speeding just because you say you didn't see the sign or you didn't know. Well, the same goes with the Lord. You're thinking, well, I didn't know. Well, you were sitting in church listening and you had a Bible. So why didn't you listen and why didn't you read? Why didn't you learn? <clears throat> I don't think I want to hear those words personally, but it would be a time of deception, even for, deceiver, uh, for believers to be deceived. So we have to be, uh, again, paying attention. Verse 6 said it would be a time of war. Verse 7 and 8, a time for natural disasters, pestilence, famines, all kinds of nasty things that happen, natural disasters. Verse 9, he said it would, between the two comings would be a time of persecution. Verse 11, a time of lawlessness. Now we see that in our culture. That's horrible. Horrible time. L- literally without law. And why, did it do it? why is it like that? Well, in our case today, we have evil people who have no moral restraints, who, who ignore the laws that are already on the books, and then they make other laws that are immoral and put them upon the people. These are the things that would continue uh, through this period of time. It's been going on for 2,000 years. And during this time, uh, as far as the church would go and the truth would go, there would be many false prophets who would uh, sort of lend themselves to disinformation as well as lawlessness. The love of many would grow cold. It would be a time, according to verse 13, that we should endure and wait upon the Lord for deliverance, that he would, he would call for each one of us who trust him to have patience and wait for his delivering power to become evident in our time of need. It was also to be a time of evangelism. Now let's look at this list from a different perspective and think about it in these terms. What are the things that we've gone through here in this chapter that have been fulfilled? Because there is a camp that believes that everything that Jesus talked about has already been fulfilled and we don't really need to look for anything else. And I think to some degree that's truth. It is true. But there are other aspects of it that it's not really that true. So let's just look at the evidence that we know. The things that have been fulfilled. Um, Well... What is it a time of disinformation? Yeah, I think we can pretty much confirm that there's a lot of liars out there. 
Since the scripture tells us that all men are liars, we pretty much fit that bill. Uh, It was a time of deception as a result of that. Uh, Extreme persecution uh, would break out against the church and the Jewish people. We've seen that uh, through the centuries. Church history is replete with persecutions that have taken place. Uh, We see lawlessness, people without morals. You know, turning justice on its head. We, we, we yeah, check, check, check. Uh, the abomination of desolation. Have did that happen? Yes, it did happen. Titus, with the Roman army, marched in and destroyed the city. Jerusalem fell. They raised the temple and the buildings. Not one stone was left unturned upon another, and they extracted the gold. It was completely. Complete devastation. And the Israeli people, the Jewish people, were scattered as a result. He said, Jesus said it would be a time of great tribulation. A time that had not been since the beginning of in the creation of the world. Now, has that happened? Well, to some degree, those people probably thought that. But I don't know that it was completely fulfilled then. I think what happened in that first century was a prelude to what will happen in in the book of Revelation. That's illustrated there. Chapters 6 through 19 are an illustration and a description of the great tribulation that is yet future uh, from our time. So that would be one of the things that has not happened. But let's look at some other things that have not happened. Have we seen the sign of the Son of Man? No. Has Jesus returned physically to rule and reign upon the earth? No, I think we can safely say that Jesus is not here. I wish he were, but you know, let's be real here. He's reigning in our hearts, and the kingdom of God is near us, it's in us, but as far as Jesus being here physically ruling, well, we can all pretty much understand that he's not. The great tribulation, as I alluded to, is yet future. Has the sun been darkened? Has the moon failed to give its light? I think not. Have the tribes of the earth mourned at the coming of Christ, his second appearance? Well, not hasn't been reported by CNN, but of course they don't report anything accurate anyway, so we can't really rely upon that source. But I don't think so. I don't think the elect have been gathered by the angels from the four corners of the earth either. And so there are definitely things that Jesus talked about in this chapter, general things, that have not been fulfilled. We know this. But what we do see is what he refers to in verse 8, the beginning of sorrows. Paul referred to this as birth pangs. At the end of the age, there would be this just before the birth of the child, there's great birth pangs that a woman experiences. And just before the end of the age, in the birth of the new age, when the king would come, <clears throat> excuse me, there would be these birth pangs, this, the beginning of sorrows. And I think that's what he's talking about there at the doors. It's here now. It will, if it was at the door almost 2,000 years ago, where does that put us now? For goodness sake, if you're sleeping and thinking that Jesus isn't going to come back anytime soon, you better wake up and be alert. Make yourself ready. Become a faithful servant. 
ready to do and to respond to the Lord's quickening power to, to execute his will. Turn with me to Luke 21. I, I just want to read this because it is, again, it's just a summary from a different angle that Luke, the gospel writer, gives us about this same setting that Jesus had there on, on the Mount of Olives. In Luke 21, beginning in verse 7. And so they ask him, saying, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign there will be these things that, are, that these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that no, you be not deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is drawn near that therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first. Then the end will, will not come immediately. And he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be fearful sights, signs from the heaven. But before all these things, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons that you might be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out to be an occasion for a testimony. Therefore, settle in your hearts. Do not meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the desolations are, are, is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of her depart. Let not, none of those who are in the country enter her, for these are the days of vengeance, that all things that are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant, and in those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the Gentiles, times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then he goes on to talk again about the signs of the sun and the moon. So you can see, and you might want to take some of your own time and just sort of compare these two passages with one another uh, to get a full picture of what Jesus is saying would happen during this period of time between his two comings. But uh, one of the things that sticks out to me, or actually a couple things, is the word uh, used here and not in Matthew, and it's the word perplexity. Literally, it means without means. So there, there, there's coming a time upon the earth when the problems are going to arise. The situations of life are going to be so that people will not have the ability to deal with it. And it's going to drive them crazy. And fear will destroy them emotionally. They'll be, they'll be at a loss and having no solution. No way out of the situation. Now, there's a phrase here at the end of 
verse 24 that you really should know and you should understand. You should learn this as well. <clears throat> it is, Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What, pray tell, is he talking about? What are the times of the Gentiles? Well, fortunately for us, we have a, a little bit of a clue in Daniel 2. I was going to give you this little assignment to look up Daniel chapter 2 and Romans 11.25, but I figured you were so busy in your schedule that we would just turn there. and Then you could just... But I still want you to go there and do this. Turn with me to Daniel 2. And I'm not going to, for the sake of time, so you'll have to spend time with this. And I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to, to know this. I want you to have an understanding for, uh, for your own sake. But Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. And he had this, this image. And he, he woke up and he couldn't... He, he knew he had something supernatural going on and he was frustrated so he called in all the wise men and said, look, I had a dream and I want you to, guys to declare me what the dream was and then tell me what it means. Oh, okay, no problem. King, just tell us what the dream was. He, well, I forgot. I don't really know. And if you don't do it shortly, I'm going to kill all of you because actually, why do I have you on the payroll if you can't do what I'm asking you to do? And so, what? Nobody's ever asked anybody to do like that. King, that's a little outrageous, don't you think? And so word got to Daniel and his friends that, hey, you know, you guys are all dead unless the king, you know, gets, an, uh, gets his dream uh, told to him and then interpreted. So uh, Daniel said, look, just give me a little bit of time. There's a God in heaven that can, can help us. And so this is the situation. And the dream essentially was a revelation of the times of the Gentiles. See, God had chosen the nation of Israel to be the head, not the tail, to be a light of the world, to bring the witness of Yahweh to the nations. They failed miserably. They got caught up in idolatry, and they were swept away in judgment and ended up in Babylon. And so that is when the times of the Gentiles begin. Instead of Israel being the leading nation of the world, they became the tail. And from that, that point in history until even into our present day, they remained the tail as it were. And the Gentiles have been trampling underfoot things of God, so to speak, all along. So this dream was an outlay of the world governing empires during this period of time. And so this is what I, uh, I want to draw attention to. It's at the end of, uh, of the end of the chapter there, in verse 36. Now I will tell interpretation of it before the king you O king are king of kings and the God of heaven has given you a kingdom power strength and glory and wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the fields or the birds of heaven he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over all of them you are the head of gold but after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours then another a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over the earth, all the earth, in verse 40, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that, that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. And whereas you saw the feet 
and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. The kingdom shall be divided, yet its strength of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in these days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall be left not left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to you, king, what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So God laid out human history right there for us. When Jesus returns, and you can follow this up with Daniel 7, where the Son of Man, and we've referred to this a few times in our past teachings here just recently, comes and takes something from the Ancient of Days who's sitting on the throne there. It's interesting comparison. And some of the things that are written as well in the book of Revelation. And so this times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now turn with me to Romans 11.25. There are those good, solid, Bible-believing Christians who believe that because of Israel's disobedience, God is completely done with the nation of Israel. All the promises that were unfulfilled in the Old Testament now belong to the church. The church inherited those promises. Well, I don't believe that that's true in its fullest sense. I believe that the Lord has chosen Israel. They are his elect. Blindness has happened to them for a short period of time, but their eyes will be opened in the future. In chapters of the book, in the book of Romans here, verses 9 through 11, you cannot deny that God is not speaking about ethnic Israel. Now, yes, the church does inherit many of the Old Testament promises. We've inherited the new covenant. We are the children of Abraham. We are the spiritual children of Abraham. The best way to parse this out for, for us who sort of wonder about this is that I believe that the, all the spiritual blessings in the Abrahamic covenant and that were promised to Israel come through Messiah and are given as gifts to the church. We do inherit those. And so does a believing Jew who wants to become part of the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. But I also believe that the physical promises that are left undone still remain and belong to the nation of Israel. So that's how I have parsed this out in my own mind. And so, but what about the time frame? When does all this happen? Well, look, look at chapter 11 here. And, and actually, let's um, go to... Um, Start in verse 11. I think that would be best. I say then, had they stumbled that they should fall? He's speaking of Israel. 
Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the fruit's fruit is holy and the lump is also holy, if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches." If you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. But you will say, well, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. For consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity. But towards you, goodness if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue, if they continue in unbelief, do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to the nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree. For I desire, brethren, hello, I desire, brethren, he's speaking to the church, that you should not be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And it shall... And so all Israel will be saved as is, is written. I hope that hope helps a little bit. Clarify the position of the church should have with the nation of Israel. I hope we understand that we are at the doors with the rebirth of the nation of Israel. With it being 2,000 years and many generations have come and gone since the first coming of Christ. It's at the doors. Is there any, can there be any mistake in inter interpreting the scriptures that way? This generation, back, let's go back to Matthew 24. Verse 34, he says, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Now, again, here we have, oh no, this generation, who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to, the, he's talking to the disciples. This generation, well, which generation is he talking about? Their generation. Well, wait a minute. I thought you said there were things that were fulfilled and there were things that weren't fulfilled. How can it be this generation? Well, then there are some people that sort of get a little uneasy with that. Well, let me ask you this. I just read you the things that were all fulfilled. Is Jesus lying? No, they were all fulfilled in, in a way, but there were certain other things that were not fulfilled. Does that make it wrong? No, just you saw it. They didn't experience everything. 
And, of course, people were a little uncomfortable with it. These things, they saw that list I read earlier, verse 3 through 26. And some people will stretch this word into meaning raise. That means, and, and I don't know that this is wrong, but a lot of theologians steer away from it. The word generation here is raise. And so they sort of can sweep this under the rug if you have a certain theological bent or your eschatology lends itself to this and saying, well, you know, Israel would never cease to be a nation. And, and that means that all these things would happen before they would stop being a nation. I sure fits good. Sure sounds good. But I don't know if you can really substantiate that. Nor do I think you really need to. You see, there's still a little bit of ambiguity still. There's a little bit of tension because it's not perfectly clear, is it? But what does that ambiguity and that tension produce? Centeredness. I don't know exactly. God doesn't want us to be haughty. He doesn't want us to be prideful in our little positions that we get all hung up on, you know, and want to break fellowship over. It's not that critical to your life that you know everything perfectly. At least if God wanted us to know, he would have made it a little bit more clear for us. You okay with that? Okay. <laughs> I'm okay with it. I don't know that I really appreciate it. <laughs> but he's the Lord and we're not. The most important thing is that what Jesus has said is going to happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not my words. And that's the thing about God. It's our God. It's different than all the other little gods. He knows the future perfectly. He speaks of things that are not as though they were because he knows they're going to be. Peter says, we have not followed these cunningly devised fables. I'm reading this out of 2 Peter 1, 16-21 if you're taking notes. And I read it out of the King James because I like the way it sounds. And that's really the way I learned it. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount And we have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts knowing first that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time but by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God stands forever and so we can rest upon the words of Christ I wanted to spend a bulk of our time this morning on that passage because it seems to be a a stumbling block and a harder passage for some but as we get into verses 36 through 44 the return of the son of man being unknown it's again it's pretty straightforward in Jesus using it as an illustration, uh, again, to awake us up and to give us an understanding of what it would be like. 
as in the days of Noah. Verse 36 says, But of that day and hour knows no one, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day that Noah was entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so this is, again, a loaded illustration for you and I and for all believers. What would it be like in the days of Noah? Well, normal human activities would be taking place. Eating and drinking, buying and selling, building, marriage, all those kinds of things. But it would also be days of ignorance. People would be unwilling to learn, unwilling to get a handle on the judgment that was coming upon the earth, a judgment that was preached by Noah, a man who was mocked, no doubt, for what he did in building an ark, talking about the flood coming. The days of Noah, it, they failed to understand that it was a day of judgment. And so some of them were, were prepared and some of them were not. Only eight people prepared. Of the whole population of the earth at that time, only eight people prepared. How many people today are preparing for the second coming of Christ? We see a lot of eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, all the things. It's right in our wheelhouse today. It's what's happening. What does it mean? Well, here there are those who want to lay, take their little eschatological viewpoint and lay it on this thing and see right there's the rapture one taken the other left oh my goodness no stop it's, it's not talking about that it's a context is judgment the rapture has nothing to do with judgment it has everything to do with the Lord catching away his bride he's talking one taken in judgment they weren't ready and so they paid the ultimate price they lost their lives one left. Yes, they were left because they prepared. No one his family prepared. They were ready for judgment because they knew it was coming and they made the preparations necessary. And really, what is the point here? This is, this is what we really need to get a hold of here, right? I mean, why did Jesus actually mention this? Of, you know, that's the point we need to guess. Look, we have a responsibility to do two things. To watch to be ready there's a big surprise coming <laughs> for many but it shouldn't be a surprise for us because we are paying attention and we're ready we realize that we're going to have to give everyone who walks in the spirit and loves God there is a deep sense of accountability to God I know that I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to answer for every one of my choices and I don't know about you but that just it isn't the heebie-jeebies but it's 
it's, it's just a fearful thing to think about that. And I try not to think of, well, I do think about it a lot. But I don't have a, I try to imagine what that's going to be like. I can't get my reminder on it, and it is sort of a fearful thing, you know. And it's a sobering thing that I'm going to give an account to God. And he talks about homeowners. You know, if the homeowner would have known, you know, again, this is going to come unexpectedly. If the homeowner knew that the thief was coming, he'd have been waiting for him. And so this whole coming of Christ is going to be like that. It's going to catch people off guard. They're not going to be ready. And I can't say it enough. Are you ready? Are you ready for the... If Jesus takes you home today or tomorrow or he comes in the air, are you ready to go? If I don't say that, if I don't ask that question, I'm remiss of my responsibilities. You need to be ready. There shouldn't be any doubt in your mind that when you close your eyes for the last time, you're going to wake up in heaven and you're going to see the Lord face to face. That's what I mean by being ready. You're ready to depart. Now, moving on, verses 45 through 51 as we close it out here this morning. The servants of the kingdom. Now Jesus is going to, he's making this transition. As I said, I think this probably would fit better in chapter, what we call chapter 25. And, and he begins to address the things that can happen to citizens of the kingdom, people who are waiting for the coming of the Lord. There's a, ten, there's a tendency in human nature for us to become complacent in our responsibility when things are delayed. Our hopes get dashed, as it were, sometimes upon the rocks, and we're, our disappointment can set up. And, and through those delays and disappointments, we can sort of, you know, fail to prepare or fail to watch. And so these next parables and illustrations about the kingdom of God help us to wake up and to pay attention to what's going on and, and actually should fill us with hope and joy that God is actually paying attention to your life into my life. Let's pick it up here in verse 45 and we'll finish up here. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all his goods but if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour that he is not aware of. He will cut him in two and appoint him a, his portion with the hypocrites, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Solemn warning to the unfaithful, to those who aren't watching, to those who aren't preparing themselves for the coming of the Lord. Faithful and wise servant. God wants you and me to be faithful. He wants us to be wise. Well, how, would we, how would we roll that out? Well, He wants us to be prudent. He doesn't want us to be dilly-dallying around doing stupid things and committing foolish sins, wasting our time. He doesn't want us to do that. He 
wants us to be prudent with all the things that he put within our possessions. Our, that would be our time. That would be all our talents. That would be all our treasures. Those three T's that are important for us. Be prudent with them. Be practical with them. That's a wise steward. This is the responsibility that God has given to us as his servants. We are rulers within his house. And of course you can see this, obviously it would apply to the leadership of the church. We are to be wise and faithful servants. We're the ones ruling over his house while he is gone. He's put us in charge of, of all the things and all of the other servants. You think about Eliezer, who is mentioned in Genesis chapter 15. I think he's alluded to in chapter 24 when he goes and gets a bride for Isaac. But here's a guy that, according from Abraham's perspective at that time, is going to inherit everything because he hadn't had any children yet. God hadn't fulfilled his promise yet. But Eliezer is the top guy. What does the top servant do? Well, he's responsible for all the other servants while the master's away to make sure that they have everything they need to do their jobs. Food, clothing, tools, etc. Whatever the jobs they, they were commissioned to do were under the leadership of the head servant and he was to make sure that everybody was equipped, that they had their necessary allotment. And a lot of times, this particular guy would be the last one to get what he needed. And obviously, we see that the, the most faithful servant, the most loving servant, was the Lord Jesus Christ. He really is the good shepherd. He, he's the one who always makes sure we have what we need. He's watching over us for our good so that he gives us the wherewithal to accomplish his plans and purposes. And he's calling us upon ministers to do the same. And actually, we understand we will be held accountable uh, to God for our service, whether it's good or not so good. So there's two questions that I constantly have to ask myself as a servant of God. And I think you should be asking the same questions within yourself. Why am I doing this? Why do I serve God? Why am I a Christian? And when I serve other people, who am I doing it for? Am I doing it so that I, you know, receive the accolades of men and the recognition for men? I'm, I'm looking for affirmation on this horizontal level. Or am I doing it unto the Lord, looking for affirmation on a vertical level? Where it's, no matter what people do or how people may respond to me, it really doesn't matter because I'm doing it for the Lord. Paul understood this perfectly. In 1 Corinthians 9.16, if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 9.16, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if it's against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I might present the gospel 
of Christ without charge. That I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. As a pastor, as a leader in the church, we have to be careful that we do not abuse our authority. And that we are here to wash feet. And as the leader, as the pastor, I am the, the one to do the most work. To wash the dirtiest of feet. And not, that's my job. And not take advantage of the position of leadership. We're here to serve. We're to be humble so that we can be other-centered. We're to be frugal with what God has given us so that we might be generous and be a good witness to the world and to others within the body of Christ and sort of be an example of laying down our lives for the brethren. Paul considered his life a drink offering being poured out for the body of Christ. And that's what God is asking of leadership. You know, I don't know that whether or not you're called to leadership or not makes the difference, but I think we should all be willing to lay down our lives for one another for the sake of the kingdom. How are we above our master? He laid down his life. Shouldn't I lay down my life too? Of course I should. You know, unless you are willing to lay down your life, unless you stop considering your life dear to yourself, you will never be found faithful in the service of God. You cannot serve two masters. You can't serve your own whims, your own desires, and serve the Lord's if they're not compatible. God's plan and purpose for your life is different than what you've got charted out. And you have to ask yourself, do I really want to experience life to its fullest level and in its deepest way? Or do I want it to chart it my way and do it my way and seek to find my fulfillment when what I think will fulfill me? I can guarantee you that you will end up frustrated and empty. That is the natural way of thinking. When we become citizens of the kingdom, there's a transformation our paradigm shifts. We begin to see things through the eternal lens that God gives us. And what really matters is the relationships that we have with one another. And we realize we can't serve two masters. And actually, what we're afraid of in full surrender as a servant is that I'm not going to like it. God's going to ask me to do something I, I just couldn't possibly do. And until you've experienced it, you're going to feel that way. But once you are willing to do it and you lay your life down and you're willing to sacrifice your life for your brothers and sisters as unto the Lord, because you're doing it unto the Lord, you'll begin to experience the abundant life that you didn't think was even remotely possible. But you're going to hold back until you taste it, until you see it. How do we get there? And this is what I want to end with. This is... This is critical because this is what I see in the church today. And, and it's being compounded by the temptations that we face in the world. Our salvation is laid out by Paul theologically in the book of Romans. We see the position that the Christian has. So we have our position in Christ and we have our experience in Christ. That's sort of how he lays it out in the book of Romans. In the first part, he talks about justification. And that's a big word for some of us. But it just, in simple terms, it means God treats us just as though he had never sinned. 
justified. That means my past is completely taken care of at the cross. I know that I'm forgiven and I'm going to heaven because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I say to you and I submit to you that many Christians are satisfied with that position only. Hey, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I've asked him into my life. But they fail to understand the second phase of our salvation is that work we call sanctification. Where God begins to fill me with his word, fill me with his life and his power. And I have the power of sin broken in my life. He begins to transform me so that I look like Christ. I begin to love people with his love. Serve people with his grace. And I experience a joy doing that. So in the first justification, it is the penalty of sin that's been taken care of. In sanctification, it is the power of sin that is broken in my life. You know why people struggle with sin? Because they have not yet submitted. They have not yet yielded those selfish desires to God. Now, it, let me tell you, this is not something that happens at the snap of a finger, but it's a lifelong process of, of recognizing what it is and then bringing it to God and saying, God, I cannot do this. I want to I give this to you. And that's how the Christian lives. We crawl on our knees, spiritually speaking, day by day to the cross saying, Lord, please deliver me from myself and my fallenness. And by faith, I die to that old nature and I live in the power of the new man. That is the way the Christian is to live. Now the final phase, something that we really probably don't have any power over, nor will we, but it's called glorification. At some point in the future, when I leave this body, I'm going to enter the presence of God, and at some point in eternity, the bride of Christ, all human beings that love God will receive a new body. And we can all say yes and amen to that. <laughs> it's going to be a glorious place. That's our future. So we have God deals with us in the past, present, and future. He's got us covered. We're forgiven. The guilt's gone. The power's given to us to break that yoke of sin. And he's going to actually set us free from the presence of sin at some future date. These are important things to understand. Now here's the breakdown. And here's the point. Why can I get from being satisfied with just being forgiven to where God is really working in me and through my life? And it's be, I think it's this simple. As a Christian, I do not understand faith. See, faith is, is a verb. It is an action word. Faith is not so much about knowing, but it's about doing. And let me illustrate it this way. If I'm standing in front of a staircase, I intuitively know that if I go walking up those steps, it's going to take me to the next level. I can look at it, yeah. That's head knowledge. There are a lot of Christians have head knowledge. I know the Bible. And, and so I sort of go into this mode where I think, well, I know that, therefore I have faith. Your head knowledge, your scriptural facts that you've got down is not faith. Faith is equivalent to walking up the steps that take you to the next level. Faith is doing what you know. If you don't have, not have the works to substantiate what you claim, 
then you don't have faith. Because that's what James is talking about. I'll show you my faith by what I am doing. That's the Hebrew word, imach. It is, it is more about doing than it is knowing. And yet many Christians will sit in the chairs, in the pews, and think, well, I know that, therefore I have faith. No, not necessarily. That knowledge can lead to faith, and that knowledge is important. But know this, that it is not actually faith until you do it. So if you really believe that Jesus Christ is coming again, you're going to prepare yourself, you're going to watch, you're going to pray, and you're going to make yourself do what God has called you to do. And what is that? It's simply this. We were created in the image of God. It means we are God's representatives while we are on this earth. We'll be that forever. We are to image Him. That means we are to do what God would do if He were here physically in the flesh. Like Jesus did this like totally perfectly while He walked. He could say to Peter, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the express image of the Father. Well, he, yes, he was God in the flesh. He did it perfectly. We, not so much. But we can, and that is the objective. And we fail, but we have forgiveness for that. We have power to overcome. So we were without excuse. Now, I am going to lay a heavy on you right now and close it, because I want you to think about this. Too much is given, much is required. There are a lot of people who want to hear a good Bible study. And that's as far as they want to take it. They're content with that little just knowing. Well, I want to challenge you. Because this is a challenge to me. And I've been praying about this all week. Lord, I need more faith. I want what I know to be a reality. Not just some head knowledge. Because that's not doing anybody any good. In fact, it's sort of a deception within my soul. If I don't get busy doing what I know God wants me to do. And you know what really got me down this path years ago? Because I've been working on it, and God's been working on me for a long time. Is when I read that scripture, in the, uh, when they were in, Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples. And he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so I would struggle. Why don't I obey you like I know I should, Lord? What's, what's my deal? And these are these inner struggles And I had to admit, I love me more than I love you. And that's why I don't obey you, Lord. And that was like the honest truth, that I had to confess that. And once I realized that I had to get self on the cross, knowing that I could not do what God wanted me to do or be all that God wanted to be in the power of self, it had to be the work of the Holy Spirit I begin to grow and my life of service changed. And so we all have to cross that chasm, as it were. It is not just a leap of faith. It is just, I believe it, God settled it, and here I go. I have no idea where I'm going to end with this, but Lord, I'm trusting you. That's what life is in Christ. It's a life of faith. That's what God has called us to. So hopefully you've endured the exhortation here. Please, Prayerfully consider the things that you've received because you will be held accountable for them. Too much is given, much will be required. The people who go to Calvary chapels, who sit under the teaching of the word, we are going to be held to a higher standard than those 
who have not heard the teaching because we're responsible for the truth we know. And I don't, that's, that sobers me. I want to, maybe I should stop studying, you know. <laughs> you want to, no, that's not the case. I need that word to wash me, right? So stand. So we close here. God bless you and thank you for your patience. And may God truly enrich your life as you seek him this week. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, we don't want to be like the crowd that went away when you begin to speak difficult things to them, (laughs) eating your body, eating your flesh, and drinking your blood. They were just, it was just too much. They didn't understand. And the disciples had it right. Where else can we go, Lord? We don't have any place else to go. We belong to you. You have the words of eternal life. You're the only one that can fix our lives. Take these train wrecks of our lives and put them back on track towards heaven. Lord, we're giving you permission. Just come. Take control of the reins. Lead us into life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.